beginning. Welcome to the podcast. My name is Sean Ram alongside Joshua Black. Joshua, how are you today? I'm doing good, Sean. It's a great day. It's actually a really beautiful day here. I'm excited that it's summer and a lot of work's being done indoors for me. Um, so I'm looking outdoors a lot these days, finishing up that uh, dissertation. But I can't wait to enjoy the sun like everyone else's. Yeah, definitely a beautiful summer. And I hope that everybody's enjoying it. And I hope you get a chance to listen to some podcast episodes. We've had some really great ones recently. And again, just appreciation for everybody who's listening, taking the time out to, to do that. You know, you honor us and you honor our guests. So really appreciate that. So on today's show, we have Dr. Christopher Kerr, and he is the Chief Executive Officer and Chief Medical Officer for Hospice Buffalo. Dr. Kerr's background in research has evolved from bench science towards the human experience of illness as witnessed from the bedside, specifically patients' dreams and visions at the end of life. The results of his studies generated enormous response in the non-medical community, both nationally and internationally, through coverage that has included the New York Times, Huffington Post, the Atlantic, BBC, Scientific American, and Psychology Today. Dr. Kerr has overseen the integration and expansion of palliative care into local hospitals and developed one of the nation's largest home-based palliative care programs, Home Connections, and Essential Care for Children. He has lectured and published on innovative program models that are designed to better align patient family services to the complexity of needs inherent to advanced illness. Dr. Kerr, welcome. Oh, thank you. Glad to be here. So it's amazing to actually finally get you on the podcast. Um, I'm a huge fan of your work, and I was able to meet you a couple years back. I think it's like three years back when I first started uh, my PhD, and I was able to meet your team. And you guys are just amazing people, and you have an amazing approach. And I think uh, what you're doing is very important for you know the world as a whole, and it really mimics some of the stuff that that I'm trying to do. And I, I'm really excited to learn some more about your journey uh, and also the work that you've been doing, because I know you've been doing a lot more work since some of the publications that have come out. So let's first, I want to first really ask, like, what got you into being a medical doctor? It, was, it, was it something that, like, your parents said, you know, do this because, you know, it's good money, good pay? <laughs> no, no I, I, I didn't. I, yes, I always wanted to be uh, a medical doctor. I just think I had, um, I had great examples but um, certainly no push from home. My mother actually was very upset that I got into medical school. So, yeah. Why did they not want you to be a medical doctor? Did they want you to play hockey instead? I know you're from Toronto. <laughs> yeah. No, I, my mom just felt that um, it was very one-dimensional and a huge sacrifice and that there's lots of ways to help people without, um, without that and that being a father and whatnot was important. So she thought, uh, you know, I should do something in other other than go to medical school. So, uh, yeah, no, she, I mean, I think she was proud of me, but certainly what she didn't, she did not want it for me. Wow. Was there like a specific career she really like thought you'd go into? She just thought um, she, psychology, teaching, social work, um, any of the above, I think would have been, would have, where she would have been happier with. That's interesting. I never would have thought that you're a rebel in your family for being a medical doctor. <laughs> yeah, well, it, it, it's, yeah, it's like, it's like it was a bad thing. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, my dad was a surgeon, did a lot of trauma, was gone a lot. So uh, she saw firsthand what it can do to quality of life. I think that was the issue. 
And has it like for you, like, like doing this, has it like impeded you in different ways that you, that happened with your father? Yeah. You know, um, certainly not as bad as his generation when, you know, the term residence came from the fact you were a resident of the hospital. He lived there every third night for almost seven years. You know, I certainly had 100-hour work weeks that are pretty stupid, and I've been on call most of my life. Um, so, yeah, I think so. Uh, not as bad as it used to be, but, yeah, it's certainly it's certainly hard to find balance sometimes. Did you say 100-hour work week? <laughs> Did I hear that right? Yep, yep. We used to go in in the morning in the ICU, start at 7, work, the full 24 and then uh, another eight that day. And um, so then that could be as long as 36, go home, sleep, then go back and do the same thing repeatedly. So you'd miss every other night was like that. Was, was you, you, yeah, they don't do that anymore. Wow. That's good. Cause I know like you must've been sleep deprived and you know, I don't, yeah, none of us were well after, you know, you do, you do that for a month it's not exactly a recipe for happiness but yeah sleep my sleep's been deprived for a long long time wow is your sleep better now though um my role's changed it's gotten better but i i i I think a lot of the damage was done you know when you're on call essentially yeah a lot of my adult life wow yeah yeah, I think a lot of people don't understand, like they, they want the image of being a doctor, but what it takes, and especially in the residency, is absolutely ridiculous, or even as the job as a profession, about staying up. Like, I could never do yeah. that. Even if I was like, if that was something I wanted to do, I love sleeping, and I love my naps, and that's just a job I couldn't do. <laughs> well, you should. Any young people are making different choices. If you look at what is desired now coming out of medical school, the specialties are most desired were not desired at all when I graduated from medical school and then a factor in the decision-making is controllable hours. So the generation behind me is making very different choices. It's uh, yeah, more healthy ones. I suppose. <laughs> yeah. Well, they're learning from your mistakes, I guess. Right. I guess so. <laughs> yeah. You're always teaching. You're always teaching. And so what <laughs> yeah, on how to do it badly. <laughs> So what um, what got you into studying and working with the dying? Because you could have done a lot of things, but you decided to go that route. Like, what was that all about? Oh, it, nothing intentional. In fact, I petitioned to get out of the hospice rotation when I was a resident. And uh, and I just wanted more ICU, more of those 100-hour work weeks. <laughs> but I, I just didn't think there was much to learn. And, and I was, you know so enamored with what you could do on the curative side i ended up at hospice just because i was looking to moonlight on the side on weekends having skipped the rotation and so it was by accident i was actually in buffalo to be a cardiology fellow so i did internal medicine and then i came here to do cardiology and saw now the newspaper looking for a doctor to do some part-time work and that's how i got here And here you still are. So what, what grabbed your attention to stay? Many years later. <laughs> oh, God, what didn't? I think the, the opportunity to take care of people in totality, uh, in the context of their families, I think being given the latitude and time to give the care that you wanted to give and could believe in, certainly being part of a team was important. 
And then just this notion there's these folks are often abandoned by traditional health care and they're at home and suffering, unfortunately, and unnecessarily. So there's a lot of work to do, stuff you could believe in and get behind. It seems like kind of saw something that was maybe more fulfilling for you to experience. Yeah. Um, You know, I never objected to the hours of medicine, but I did object to disproportionate menile stuff. Um, If you're going to work this hard, you at least want to be able to get passionate about it. Yeah. What's it like? Uh, Just thinking about what it's like to be a resident for what I, what the perception is. What's it like dealing with all these emergencies and kind of just, I guess, putting out fires? Would that be a good way to say it is what you're doing essentially? Oh, it's exhilarating. And the learning curve is steep. It's scary. You're often by yourself, but you're going through it with other people who are trying to figure it out. You've got nurses to guide and shape you. You're exhausted. You're under the gun. You're scared. But the responsibility, you know, you start to feel it pretty early, um, the, the significance of it. And um, and you want to be good. It matters to get good. So it's 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 an it's an I I just have nothing but great memories of being a resident. You don't want to do it more than once in your life, but, but I yeah. uh, and I I just adored the the people who taught me. Um, the amount of time and their examples were extraordinary. I mean, you just hoped you could be half as good as they were. So yeah, it was a good memory. Seems like a like a type type of a tough marine training. And then once you, because it's kind of similar, they go through like a lack of sleep type of situations and, you know, emergency yeah. type of uh, things. And then after that, you know, from what I understand, you kind of, you, you're, you're bonding with your team and then, you know, you've gone through something. Um, you've endured, right? Yeah, you've endured, you know, you're resilient. Yeah, I, I, I'm I, all of the above. I'm wondering how your uh, bedside manner evolved from the beginning to where it is now, because uh, you think you'd, kind of have to speed that up along the way well i think the biggest thing is is you know for uh, respect to the dying because at in residency it's all about what you can do and learn and we thought learning and was doing things to people so we would often stop following people who were dying who we were no longer doing things to because we didn't think there was anything to learn from so we were part of the abandonment of dying, of the dying, which was it's tragic. To follow along with that analogy, it's like, you know, the firefighters have done their job and then kind of they, they leave that house yeah, after. It's a good analogy. Burned. Right, 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 right. Yeah. And you're not, you're not there for, which is too bad because it's also personally so meaningful. You know, it's, 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 you're lesser the person for turning away. Um, and, you know, we just don't do a good job of honoring this notion that, you know, our obligation is when we can't cure is to comfort. And then we learn one side of the sword, but not the other. So I think that's what's happened. And I, I think, again, being given the latitude to stop and set at the bedside and getting to know um, the complexities of, of, of a patient that they have all sorts of pains that are spiritual, psychological, whatever, and that you can tend to people even when they can't be cured. Uh, so all that's part of this process. 
And so when was it that you started like hearing about or seeing people discuss dreams and visions of the dying? Because I'm guessing you had to see it first before you wanted to research it. Yeah, I, as soon as I got here, it seemed like the joke was on me. Everybody but me knew. And I think that's generally too. To this day, if I lecture to a group of nurses and you ask who's familiar with it, you know, almost universally that everyone will raise their hands. You ask a group of med students and very few will. The more people are more proximate to the bedside, actually providing care, hands-on, this is just a given. So when I got here, hospice is a nurses' movement, and um, you know, it was nurses and music therapists and chaplains who could point this out to me. But I had no idea. That's so interesting. Because, yeah, you've been, you said, like, you're not being trained in this area at all. Do you see that changing with everything that you've been doing? No. I, I, I wish I could tell you I do, but I don't. I think it changes in the non-medical community. I think this helps awareness. I don't see any signs that you know, medicine is more fragmented and becoming more so. Um, it's uh, more subspecialized. So I, do, I, don't, I, don't see, um, I don't see it changing. I mean, even the whole economics of healthcare, down, particularly in the States, is based on intervention and doing things. So it doesn't necessarily, I, I don't see it translating. Um, I wish I did. Not in, not in our lifetime, I don't think. Seems like that happens in society kind of at a normal level. Like something will get, be almost pushed by pop culture society in order to change the established norm. Like, I mean, it's happening all around us with the internet and whatnot. You know, that's kind of forcing, you know, traditional media to kind of conform and seems like the way you're describing it happens ha happens in the medical community as well, where maybe something that's uh, more into society and pop, pop culture and driven by communities and people is kind of helping the established uh, medical industry, if you will, change a little bit. You know, people yeah. follow the dollars, I guess. Yeah, I, I um, yeah, I just, I, I don't know. I, 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 there's not a lot of space for this sort of thing. But I think the flip side is, I think that. When it comes to dying, the family and loved ones are often the best advocates. So I think for that audience, this stuff's very informative. So can you tell us some uh, cool facts and some stuff that you've been finding ever since you know researching this stuff uh, for the people who are listening? Sure, sure. I, you know, I, I think I, I got into this in part because I was frustrated trying to teach it because um, the response I got was there's no evidence for this. And um, and the other big criticism was, you know, it's part of the dying brain kind of thing. And and so I, I did the research not to amuse myself, just to make the case. So we started, our original research was, you know, asking people, quantifying it, which nobody had done. But the big difference of our research was it was the first to ask people directly about their experiences. So there's lots of things that were done in surveys, surveying doctors and nurses. And if you think about it, that's odd given it's such a, personalized, introspective, subjective experience that you can't really ask somebody else third hand. So we designed a study that had a protocol where we uh, had quantitative and qualitative elements to it, and we asked people every day as they approached death and to get their perspective. And we videotaped many people because people tend to get, have this notion that they're frail and unlike us, and in fact, they're very much like us. I think the first thing that's interesting is that you know we 
there's this notion that you could predict death, approaching death, based on changes in content and frequency of dreams, and um, that uh, that's exactly what we found. Um, so there's a rapid spike in, in the number of dreams people have, but also the content switches, and it switches to seeing more of the deceased. And what's interesting in that is when you rate comforture, seeing the deceased has the highest level of comfort. So there's this built-in mechanism as as one approaches death. I think the other thing that's fascinating is half the people say they these weren't dreams at all. They were awake. And this may be pointing to lucid dreaming, where it's essentially virtual uh, or lived, or just that fluctuating state of awareness and alertness that comes with dying. You're kind of in and out. But people were very clear that these experiences were more dissimilar than similar to normal dreams. You know, this statement you often hear is, um, you know, you don't understand. I don't normally dream. This actually happened. This was lived. Um, so I think those are the interesting features. That's so That's so cool. Man, <laughs> I like that. I like that stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and so you said, like, the uh, it's starting to actually predict about like when they're going to die and do you think that like why do you think it happened at the end of life and not you know something that you know throughout their journey like why at the end it like this these experiences happen more often i think facing mortality actually facing it not contemplating it but facing the the reality of it is there is only once and and it's something one can't imagine, prepare for, position to. Um, I just think it's authentic when you know your your life is ending. And so it's not surprising that this experience is unique to that time. Yeah, it's so interesting because you're right. Like, you know, I've never faced mortality, but if I did, probably one of the, you'd think one of the scariest things coming. Because like when someone, you know, loses someone, like they're bereaved, you know, you don't have that, you know, increase or you have, you have these dreams, but like you said, like that increase, it seems like it's very important for like the body's doing this on purpose at this moment. And there's just a something about, you know, dying that it's trying to, for whatever reason, so it's either way, it's trying to help the individual move forward or be able to transition. And I think that's interesting how even like the body doesn't want to die in stress. You know, there's something about going in peace that it seems to be the, you know, the mechanism. Yeah, well, I mean, it's a paradox, right? You're physically dying, but you're psychologically and spiritually vibrant and alive. Um, I think it does more than just ease a transition towards dying. It also validates very much um, the life that you've led and the people you've loved. Those relationships come to the forefront and, and or the surface. I mean, m most people are really editing life. So the people who, the parent who withheld love isn't in them and the person who nurtured them best is in them. So we're kind of, that's the currency, uh, is love. So it's very life affirming despite being a dying process. That's so incredible to even just like wrap your head around that because it's, it's essentially your body kind of it's a stage in your life that's your body's preparing mind body soul everything's kind of working towards something like that we have so many stages in our life where we're changing transitioning from this to that you know from teenager to an adult you know your body going through changes your mind going through changes and then here's this final stage which you know is just it's crazy that this wasn't looked upon or even thought about really or taken seriously 
uh, Intel, your work started, you know, hitting the pop popular media. That's incredible. You know, I, I, well, I think it was. I think, I, I think it's something we lost. I mean, if you look at from an anthropologic transcultural standpoint, it actually was valued um, through the beginning of time. In many cultures, it's just a given. It's the, how they're tied to their past, to their ancestors, to their meaning. Um, I think it's something we've lost as we've medicalized dying. Dying here is, is, is about organ failure, uh, failing parts. It's not the culmination of a life or anything like that. It's, it's about uh, decline. So on that failure. note, could, on that note, could you see moving forward um, maybe a revival of some of those type of um, rituals, if you will, or, you know, death ceremonies? I don't know about that, but I certainly, you get the feeling that this, the next generation doesn't want to die in sterility. You know, they don't want, um, they want a richer uh, experience than, than, you know, let's say, you know, death in an intensive care unit. I think you, you see that. I think they, um, yeah, the, this generation's in, and, and you're seeing it in popular culture. There, you know, things like Death Cafe. People are are, are leading the way and asking um, those sort of questions. Absolutely. Like the baby baby boomer generation isn't okay. They're not. I mean, they're not okay with nursing homes decline, and they're not okay with death in units. I think they want a more humanized experience. And so, yeah, I think too, what you're talking about is, you know hopefully what's going on is, you know, like people are maybe asking about these experiences more often. Do you, when you like visit with the, the, the dying, do you need to ask about these experiences before they share or do, are they like willing to share it? Cause I know a lot of the bereaved, they hide a lot of these experiences in. Um, so is that the same? Oh, it's, it's like a cocktail party. You got the guy in the corner who <laughs> wants to divulge everything. <laughs> Any other per- person who just wants to ask you questions or shy and, that's self-reflective, and th- there's a. Th- I think the majority, if when you ask them the questions um, about it, they they re- it's cathartic, you know. And people never say, "I don't want to participate." Um, you know, pe- people again try to quarantine off the dime, but they're sitting there in a bed looking at a white ceiling, and they're having these intense inter- inner world kind of experiences, and they're 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 very happy to share. Very few people. Sometimes you have to give permission for it and saying, you know, it's really common for people to have these intense, real like life-like dream experiences. You know, does that happen to you? And you get, yeah. Um, and it's valid, validating. And when you, because not everyone, because the assumption is when you dream of the deceased, you need someone to, that you knew um, that has died. Um, so what about children? Sometimes they're on deathbed and they haven't really lost, you know, a parent or anything like that. Do they still have these dreams of visions of, you know, maybe the Yeah, I think they issues? actually do it better than anybody. It's, it, it's, I'm writing a book and that's actually a chapter in, in the book is this is the language of death for children. We have a number of children on film. And, uh, and what's remarkable is that they don't know somebody who's died. They certainly know pets who have died. And so um, pets come back to them in the same way. And what the children tell us is this tells them that they're secure, that they're going to be okay, and that they're loved. And a a lot of children aren't actually told, frankly, you know, 
you're now terminal and you're going to die now. Um, they may be told there's no more treatments, what have you, but they don't. There's an often language, and they don't have a reference point for this, for death or mortality. Um, so it's hard to get this to translate. But I think that actually the dream, this, the dreams are more informative for children than adults. And we, I mean, we've seen this again and again. Can you walk us through the experience in terms of the emotion and maybe the energy that's in that room uh, when you're working with the dying? No, I, I don't know as I can <laughs> capture it. And, and, and I, I actually think it's different for everybody. I think that um, I think it's surprisingly more comfortable and more human than we envision it. I think it's it's more natural. I think death for most is progressive sleep. And to sleep, you have to be comfortable. And to be comfortable, you have to be physically okay. But you also have to be psychologically okay. So that means, you know, with loved ones and reassured as much as possible and secured as much as possible. And I think these processes, the subjective processes help in that and bringing people to a good spot. But I think that you know, our exposure to death is so physically skewed. You know, if you have cancer, the majority of your disease trajectory is focused on organ failures, you know, interval assessments of, you know, disease progression numbers or whatever. But there's a whole non-physical aspect of dying um, that contains meaning and grace and forgiveness and themes of love and reunion um, and peace. So I don't think that I, th I think we're so skewed to seeing the 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 ugliness of death, including loss, that we don't see that there's other parts to it that have worth. Yeah, absolutely. It's 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 just not as black and white as kind of people have made life and death out to be. You know, it's, it's, oh, this no, is mm -mm. positive. That's negative. Um, how do you support those who have shared those experiences? Because that's a tough one for even like just looking at myself, you know, it, it can be tough sometimes, you know, how, what do you say, right? Like, how do you, how do you support those people? Oh, I think you validate um, whatever their experiences, uh, you know, first, you, you know, you create the opportunity or the space for them to share. And then that, you know, uh, validating that this is more common than not. And I think uh, if if they want to share that there's opportunity to discuss it, so that they um, that's a big part. That expression of it is is really important because they're sitting there uh, often wondering what's going on. And I just think taking it at its value, and then it, the stories themselves lend them lends itself to more opportunity. So it leaves a door open. So tell me about your grandfather, or you know that sort of thing. Yeah, I just, I, yeah. So I, I would say, you know, based off that, you know, good listening skills, rather than just you know starting to talk and like what a lot of people like myself probably do sometimes. Um, I, I have you know, a question. I, I think the sorry, problem is that we 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 tend to treat the the dying as though um, you know we want to bubble wrap them and forget that they're actually living as well. Um, yeah. So it's a huge mistake people make. They. I, some of the best deaths I've seen, they've had celebrating somebody's birthday in the room. Uh, or it's like a kitchen family thing where there's nine people yapping away and eating pizza. I think 
the tones and sounds that make us familiar to others um, are what matters. So I think we we tend to, again, sterilize uh, and 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 it's got to be quiet and you know, oh, don't talk to them; they're resting and that kind of thing. And it's just it's just not true. There's there's important things that need to be expressed. This this notion that the final words don't carry importance is just wrong. They may be yeah. the most potent words I've ever said. Absolutely. And like you alluded to, you know, everybody is different. So, you know, there's some people who maybe yeah. want to be a little quiet and some people want to share more. Yeah, absolutely. And so um, before we move over to just your own loss and your grief, can you just take us take us like look back and and of your YouTube TED Talk video that's up? Did you ever think it was going to reach, was it over 600,000 views? Like, is this like, like something that you ever dreamed of? No, no, no. So very quickly what happened is I published it in the medical journals and never got a um, reply from the medical community and then reluctantly did a TED Talk. Somebody held up a camera and just said, do your audition. Tried to cancel the TED Talk, reluctantly did the TED Talk. Um, and I'm going around the world, New York Times, the Atlantic, the BBC, you know, et cetera, China, Ireland, India. And now they're doing a documentary and a book. So could I, I couldn't, I could never have forecast any of that, but it, but I, I'm telling you that just because what, what there's, there's a take away from that, which is there's a disconnect between what the medical community's awareness or interest or value of this stuff is, right? And then there's the people who are actually responsible for caring for, who are doing the living and the dying um, and the grieving. And they actually long for this. And what's interesting is when you read all the responses online, they're they're not um, they're not they're not commenting on me like you're a great guy. What they're doing is they're saying, uh, you know, th- thank you. I uh, I um, you've given me a clinical context for what I just experienced. Actually, I'm looking at a reply that just came in 14 hours ago. My dad passed away this morning. I needed to hear this. Thank you for sharing. It's it's this idea that. There's no framework for this, so people are left put on a shelf and under, wonder, wondering what uh, what happened, and, um, and 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 so this is what's meaningful for the so the responses are the most fascinating thing. It, you know it, and I I think people are just hungry for that type of knowledge and information from an academic, from someone who's done the research. You know, it's what you know based off just just regular society type of people like myself, <laughs> lay people, <laughs> but you look at like, where, 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 where have we learned about dying and dreams and stuff like that before, you know, it's not from credited sources and, you know, just kind of like, you know, I hate to say it, but woo type of ideology. And so people like me, and I'm sure a lot of other people, especially people in the industry uh, themselves are looking for like legit information. And then when you put a video like that, you know, people just, they find it. People are searching YouTube and they're looking at these things. And I hope that encourage you to do more and like get excited because it's people like you that are going to bring this topic uh, really into the forefront. Well, yeah, you, what it does is actually you don't feel like you have a choice. Um, 
Because if you you wanted to pivot and research on something else, um, this has its own momentum that that is pretty hard to um, ignore. So you're always going to be. So is it weird? Always going to be. You're always going to be labeled the uh, death and dreams of the dying guy. Like you're the. Yeah. (laughs) What's 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 creepy is you know one I'm death averse and never intended to, to to practice this medicine and the research I I did this on the spiritual would be the last thing I would have ever signed up for so I think God's messing with me because both of them I seem unfit for the only thing I, I wonder sometimes is maybe I'm a good messenger because of it because I have n- no particular leanings this way like I didn't seek out this you know I, I, re- I really I truthfully was stunned when I saw it and what, what happened was it was just so obviously therapeutic is, you know, you'd be an idiot if you didn't at least you, you, to ignore it would have just have been wrong. Yeah. And if you follow the Bible or Bible stories, you know, God often picks unwilling participants. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Well, there you go. To push his message. Well, thank her for me because. Uh... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so actually you said something interesting, you know, you're generally adverse to death. How's now has being immersed in this field changed something a little bit? Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I certainly didn't do it. Um, certainly wasn't by design. I, 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 I think it was a, you know, I, I lost a child, a parent as a child, and I, I, I think that changes you in a way that's hard to describe. I think that's one. And I think medicine was in a, you're, when you're a doctor in medicine, you're in a very safe place and when you're on the curative side of it. And that was okay with me. Um, so, yeah, I didn't um, do this deliberately. Can you just touch on uh, just the death of your your father when you were younger, um, and and how that was for you growing up? Yeah, it was. Um, I was twelve. It was hell, and you know everything kind of fell apart afterwards. I, um, you know, I got kicked out of two schools, and I um, failed grade eight, and uh, I ended up going to boarding school at St Andrews in Aurora, Ontario. But that was it. But you know, at the end of his life, he 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 was having experiences and trying to, you know, he's adjusting my shirt to say we had to go catch a plane to go fishing. So he was having these really intense experiences. And, um, you know, I was taken out of his room and that's the last time I saw him. But it was, you know, it was one of those things that's burned into your, into your mind and your heart. And I, I really never talked about it. And then I come to hospice and all these people are having these experiences. So it, um, it kind of came full circle. Wow, that's so strange that it happened like that because there's a lot of different ways people could die and what they share. And you're right, like it was almost like a a prelude to you know what the future was holding. And you know, I see yeah. I, I see that with my own life. I used to, my biggest I was the biggest fan of Braveheart. Have you ever seen the sh- the movie? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, and like he has these dreams of his deceased uh, wife that you know like right. I didn't right. notice until I started doing this work, I had my own and I'm like, Oh my God. Then I look back right. at the movie and it's like, it's throughout and you're like, Oh my, was this following me? So it's, it's amazing what life, your life journey can get you and, and do. Yeah. And, <laughs> whether you, whether, you, whether you, you want it or not. That's right. That's, that's so very true. And so what was it so difficult after your father? Like I know it was back in the day and, and 
where did your did your mom and or people talk about death and and your grief with you or was it something you yeah just... it was just hard you know because there's i had three other siblings and one as young as eight and they're just your your home is just not the same and you've got a distraught parent who it's hard for that person to be the same parent um and instead of talking about it in a healthy way, I wouldn't talk about it at all. Just as a, a, a teenage, an age-appropriate response. I did, you know, there was a lot of help in grieving. Yeah, I, I just think it's a, um, you know, you're traumatized, uh, and, and mm. it's it's not just you. You're also watching your family suffer. I had three other siblings, my mom, and. Um, you know, you're at that age too. It's difficult transition-wise. You know, r- rage is a is a grief response. <laughs> I uh, I had a lot of rage and got in a lot of trouble, and that, that's kind of what happened. Um, looking back, because when I look at the losses I've had in my life, you know, when my grandfather died, I was around that age, ten or eleven, twelve. There were certain things that I look back now and see certain rich funeral rituals that. I could see how were important at the time, maybe not, but are there any for you that maybe stuck out? No, I have no memory. I, I couldn't tell you. I, I, it, it, I have no memory. The, the only thing I actually remember of that whole time is that scene at the bedside. And then I, I literally couldn't tell you, I couldn't even tell you where the funeral was or the burial was or anything. So just an absolute blank. Wow. Does that like when you when you talk about that, does that upset you that you can't remember at all? No, no, it's far more upsetting not to remember the good things. Mm. I'm all good not remembering <laughs> those sorts of things. It's just that you know it, it was so long ago, and then and, and, and so much happens. It's traumatic that there's a lot of recall. I think that that, that is no longer available. And that's tragic. Oh, wow. I didn't know it. Yeah. even the positive memories, too. Wow. Sure. You often hear people say, I don't remember their voice anymore. Um, uh, memory fades. And um... So this is a question. Do you ever have dreams of your father? Um, and does that provide no. you new memories? Oh, you don't? No. Nope. So on the podcast, when, uh, which is where, when we're wrapping up, we always like to ask what dream would you want to have if you could tonight um with your father in it and if you take us through that dream oh wow yeah pretty heady yeah i don't know (laughs) uh i guess it would be um great to compare notes you know here's what life looks like from where i've been sitting and um you know, uh, yeah, I suppose that acquainting, reacquainting. Hmm. Would it be like comparing notes of who you are versus who you think you are? You know, like... Yeah, maybe, or just what, what's, what's life? Who have you loved? Tell me about your children, those sort of things. Uh, yeah, it's sometimes, right? It's just a, a simple conversation is what we uh, yearn for. Yeah, most. yeah. Right? Yeah. Coffee, just yeah. sitting down and... Familiarity, yeah, and rehashing. Like I'm sure your dad could share some hockey stories with you and things like that. Yeah. A lot of positive memories, right? Yeah, I think you got it. And then, because you're such a, a special guest here, and you work with the dying, 
I, I, we want to ask you one, one last question, and that is when you're dying, what kind of experiences would you want to have? Um, I'd want to be comfortable. Um, I'd want to be um, true with dignity. I want to be surrounded by those I love and just respect it. And would you want a specific, need... would you want a specific dream or, or vision, uh, vision? Yeah. The ones I see my patients have where they're, where they, they get to um, feel the closest of the little people that they loved. And that's interesting because now, you know, after hearing so many stories and experiences and sharing these things, like, you think that the possibilities are, are greater for you. Like you, you have these, you know, these frameworks, these, these ide- ideas that people have kind of shared with you. And, and I would just, I would assume that, you know, you're leaning more towards, or, you know, you're opening that door a little more. Yeah, I would think, I would think so. You're, you're certainly less obstructive, right? I, I, I think that's probably very true. I think it'd be pretty funny because you're expecting this stuff. It just never happens. You're like, where's well, my I've had dream? that happen. I had, a pa- I had a patient who was downright angry that she wasn't having them. The last thing Perfect. we want you to say is, is there a place where people can find you or your new book or anything else uh, out there? Sure. The, the book will be coming out, coming out for a while. Um, there's a documentary. You can see the trailer, Deaths But a Dream, on YouTube. And my TED Talk. Beautiful. Thank you, Thank you guys. Great questions. Oh, I'm happy you enjoyed uh, your time on here, and uh, we can't wait to see what else uh, you and your team does as you move forward. Thank you. Good luck with your stuff. Thanks so much. Please check out our platform at griefdreams.ca for more information on the topic. If you have Facebook, you can join the Grief Dreams Facebook group. Check us out on Instagram and Twitter at Grief Dreams. Um, and you can find this podcast on iTunes, Podbean, Stitcher, Uh, many other podcasting platforms, uh, and we've recently added ourselves to Spotify. So check us out there. If you're interested in being a guest on our podcast, please email us your story and what you would like to share at griefdreamspodcast at gmail.com. And as always, with love and gratitude from us to you. introduced myself you have introduced yourself this is a very good conversation